Hello, and welcome to the PCF Bible Talk podcast. My name is Anna McGill, and I'm here with our guest today, Dr. Mark Catlin, who I'll introduce more in just a moment. Today, in this bonus episode in our Drama of Redemption series, we are going to talk more specifically about the authenticity and authority of the Old Testament biblical text, and even more specifically, about the Pentateuch. And just to clarify our terms before we start, we use the term Pentateuch to refer to the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The word Pentateuch comes from the Greek penta, which means five, and tuk, which means books. So really just a fancy way to say five books. But our question today that we want to talk about is how do we approach these books of the Pentateuch? What kind of writings are they? Can we read the Pentateuch as a trustworthy historical account? Did Moses really write all of these books? What does it mean to accept the authenticity and authority of these biblical texts? These are deep questions, and I'm so grateful that today I'm able to talk over these things with our guest, Dr. Mark Catlin. To tell you a little bit about him, Mark grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, where he attended Samford University and majored in classics. Mark also earned a Master of Divinity and Master of Arts in Biblical Languages from my own alma mater as well, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in the Boston area. And Mark went on to get a PhD in Old Testament from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in North Carolina. In 2012, Mark moved to New Jersey to do campus ministry at Princeton University. Um, And then in 2019, Mark left Princeton to join the faculty of Union University as assistant professor of biblical studies. And he and his wife, Kimberly, currently reside in Memphis, Tennessee with their four children, Sam, Molly, Sarah, and Andrew, who are super cute. And I have had the privilege of caring for in our church nursery for many years. And I've missed them since they've moved to Memphis. So it gives me doubly great pleasure to have this conversation with Mark as both a brother in Christ, a scholar, and a friend. And thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to, to join you, and I chuckle uh, just uh, about the kids. They are uh, super cute, which I think they must get from their mom or something. But uh, <laughs> we we also had a great time in Princeton, and uh, we went to Stonehill together as well, mm-hmm. uh, right. where, you, where you saw them in the nursery and uh, did campus ministry. I had, with a different campus ministry, uh, I was with a different campus ministry, but we also worked together uh, mm-hmm. talking about some of these things with students. And so uh, fond memories of Princeton uh, and, and our family there uh, with students at the university, but also uh, at Stonehill and with you and your family. Uh, you, uh, your family and had us in your home several times and we, mm-hmm. we really enjoyed your hospitality. So it's great to be uh, on this uh, podcast with you uh, and talking about what we're talking about uh, for the students uh, at Princeton. So thanks for, for letting me come on. Yeah, so I've been really blessed by Mark's insight into different biblical topics on a whole range of things in the past, but also specifically on these issues, which I've heard him speak about before. And so I'm glad that we can now speak about them in a context that is recorded and available to others. All right, so let's get started. And our first question, really, Mark, is sort of about the genre of the Pentateuch and just what even type of writing are these books? Like if someone were to say to you, oh, the first five books of the Bible are not historical, they're just 
myth. They weren't even meant to be factual accounts. They were never meant to be read literally. Right. What would you say to that kind of line of thinking and how would you start to work out the genre of these books? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And uh, I think there are kind of two big categories kind of at the outset that I would put out there. One, uh, it's theological history. Uh, and so the biblical authors are not writing from some sort of neutral position. They do have a purpose. They have a point, and they're trying to say something. And uh, the point that they're trying to make and their purpose for writing is really uh, to tell the story about the God of Israel, uh, that he's created all things, that he's good, uh, that he has a purpose for his creation, and that and that Israel has a role to play in it. Uh, and so there is a, a theological point that it's trying to make, and so that's going to shape the way that they tell the narrative. Uh, the other kind of big category other than theological history is that it's also ancient history. So it, it's within the context of the ancient Near East. Um, and what we're going to find with that is that uh, the biblical narrative is going to employ narrative forms and conventions from the ancient Near East to reveal the true story of the God of Israel. Uh, in, in other words, you're going to see kind of the genre of the, that you find in the Bible. You're going to see similarities in the ancient Near East. So legal texts uh, in the Pentateuch are going to look similar to legal text in the ancient Near East. Uh, mm-hmm. The story of creation, there's going to be overlap and similarities between uh, creation stories in the ancient Near East and creation stories uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, but there's also stark differences when we look at these similarities. Uh, and the similarities are important for ca- conveying meaning. It kind of gives us a category for understanding the genre uh, that we're looking at. Uh, but there's also going to be these stark contrasts. And it's really at the distinction and the differences between the ancient Near East and biblical text uh, where we find uh, the importance of understanding who the God of Israel is. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, you look at creation stories in the ancient Near East, and there's these battles going on between the gods. Uh, and you, you open up to, to Genesis 1 of the creation narrative, it's just in the beginning, God created. Uh, it's very peaceful. <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there's a stark contrast. There's not a war going on. Uh, there's one God, not many gods. Uh, and he just speaks by his word, and things happen, and they're created and there's not this this opposition, this war, this battle that's going on. And so you'll see similarities uh, that are there, but those differences are there to tell you what is unique about this story uh, and who God is. Uh, and sometimes we can be scared of those similarities um, and say, well, isn't the Bible supposed to be this unique story? Uh, and it is. It is a unique story within the ancient East. It tells about a unique God. It uh, it's monotheistic. It's telling about one God, that the God of Israel is not just the God of Israel in this little slice of land. He's the God who created all things and the rightful ruler and owner uh, of all things. But uh, I don't think we should be surprised or threatened by the fact that there are these similarities uh, between the Bible and the ancient Near East. Uh, and the reason that's the case is uh, God is not only speaking to a people and culture, Uh, But he also speaks through that people and through that culture. Hmm. Uh, In other words, he's going to, you know, the writing of the text, it's not in English. uh, It's not in Spanish. It's not in French, right? It's in Hebrew, right? Uh, Well, why is that? Well, because he's speaking to a people who uh, speak and read in Hebrew, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and so when we think about that, that's that's a cultural thing that God takes on in order to communicate who he is. Uh, And so he's also going to take on forms of literature that they would expect to read. Uh, and so when we, we think about that, God is communicating through what we would expect 
but also to correct some of our wrong theology that are that are in those forms, right? So he doesn't take on the theology of the creation stories of the ancient race. He doesn't take on the exact same laws. There's unique things there, but the form helps us understand, okay, this is what he's talking about. Oh, but these differences tell us he's a unique God uh, with a unique purpose uh, for both the world uh, and for us. And, and sometimes when I think about that, I can get a little, you know, I can get a little uneasy myself looking at the, these similarities and think, wow, you know, is the Bible really unique? And then I, I think, one, yes, the differences are there. But two, how else was he supposed to do it? Hmm. Was he supposed to speak in like a language that nobody knew? How would he communicate? Why would anybody believe? How would they trust? Is it, would it be completely different forms uh, th- that nobody had ever heard of? I think people would be like, wow, that's a strange thing. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, but God does make sense when he speaks. He's clear when he speaks. He reveals himself and and through uh, what things that we already know, but also to overturn some things that are wrong about that. So these similarities and differences, all, all that to say, uh, when we read the, uh, the Bible, we're looking at a theological history that is within the context of the ancient East. And, and so when I read the text like that, we're asking the question, is this, are we to read it literally? Yeah. Uh, I guess I could say the answer is yes, as long as what we mean is we read it according to what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, we read it as theological history in an ancient context. Uh, and so when we read it the way that it's intended to be read or the way that it was written, then we can start to ask questions about what is this text. And so when, when we do that, uh, you know, my conclusion would be uh, that the text does seem to present its original readers and, and therefore also us with an historical account. It, it recounts real events, real people happening in real time and space in the world that we, inha- that we inhabit. And it reveals who God is through those stories, who we are, where we are, uh, what's happened to bring us to where we are, and then calls us to respond. Uh, th- this is a story that says uh, you need to respond to this uh, mm-hmm. because this God, the God of Israel who's created all things, has a claim on who you are and what's going on in the world. Are, are you going to join him in what he's doing? Uh, or, or not. And, and there's that real history that's connected to our world uh, to tell that story, I think. So I hope that that's helpful in, in kind of delineating that. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, and I think it, I really like your point about just, it's even written in the Hebrew language. You know, we do believe that God communicates through human beings and through human cultures and through human languages. Um, and that obviously those have their constraints, but God chooses to use those constraints to communicate truth about himself. Um, it doesn't make everything relative, but it is something that even outside of the Old Testament, we also wrestle with, like, what does it look to cu- like to communicate truth in our culture and, or in another culture? Right, so right. I just, I think that's an interesting tie-in, but we won't go too much further down that road. But maybe if you could unpack, like, how you would use this way of reading the text to like read a text like Genesis three, like, is that history? Is that myth? Like, can you demonstrate how you would think about that text? Cause it's kind of a strange text in terms of, even in terms of the rest of the Bible, there really isn't this, you know, two human beings walking with God in a garden and a talking snake. And, um, you know, it, it's elements that aren't repeated later on. And so how do we, what do we do with that? Yeah, I think, you know, in, in general, um, you do see in the ancient Near East that there's kind of a, a motif of a serpent. Uh, maybe he's deceptive, he, he's wily, he's crafty. Uh, and you see some other things, like I think uh, in terms of an ancient Near Eastern category, Genesis 2 
is really told in the in, in the language of the creation of an image uh, of a god. Uh, and so Adam and Eve are created as these images of God, uh, in the image and likeness of God, and put in the garden. And then you have this challenger that comes in, right? So this is a general kind of plot. Uh, things are set up. You have a purpose. Everything's good. And then there's this conflict that happens. Uh, and, and so it does pick up on some of these ancient Near Eastern things that are happening in the text. And I think that image theme carries through into Genesis 3. That's probably too technical to get into, but if you want to get into it, Kathy McDowell has written a wonderful book on this. Um, but there's uh, in creating an image, there's a lot of talk of the opening of the eyes uh, and the opening of the mouth. And so this uh, Eve sees that it's uh, good for food uh, and she eats with her mouth because some Adam eats with her mouth and their eyes are opened and they see new things. And so it's playing off these ancient Near Eastern motifs. Um, and so then the question becomes, is this just kind of a mythical story, an allegory for uh, the human plight and, and striving between ourselves and God and the serpent? And so that's when I think we have to say, okay, well, when we dive into the biblical text, do we see that the way that this story is connected together, does it really seem like it's just mythology or is it connected to something historical? And you know, a big question that, that people have is something like, are Adam and Eve individual historical figures? And there's some implications for that that we probably can't dive into. Um, but it seems to me that when we ask something like, uh, what would an ancient reader think? One category for understanding what an ancient reader would think is, what do later biblical authors do with this text? Uh, because later biblical authors are ancient interpreters of the text. Closer uh, in time than us. Exactly. And, and both Old and New Testament, right? And so there's some very simple observations that we can make that in this realm that make me think this is an historical account about two individual people. Uh, take First Chronicles 1.1, for example. Chronicles begins with a genealogy uh, that's just you know, very bland history. <laughs> You know, uh, this person and this person and this person were born. and But the genealogy begins with Adam and then moves to Seth. Uh, it seems to me that the chronicler, uh, the author of Chronicles, is reading this Genesis narrative as individuals and historical person uh, who uh, knew his wife Eve and uh, Seth was born. Right. And then Seth is is born from him. And then the historical line continues into figures that we know that are historical and, and that genealogy is selective in who it's going to talk about. It doesn't mention Cain and Abel, for example, uh, but all the figures that are chosen that are selected are historical figures, like they're real individual human beings. Uh, and so the chronicler seems to be tracing uh, the history of Israel back to Adam. Uh, and saying that Adam is this historical figure. I think uh, Luke, uh, the, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, does a similar thing. He's an ancient reader. Uh, he has a purpose, obviously. He's trying to talk about Jesus. Uh, but in Luke 3, he has a genealogy that, that works backwards. And when he works backwards to that genealogy, he ends up with Adam. He goes all the way back to Adam. And all those people are individual human beings uh, and it seems to me that the way to read that for Luke is that Adam is this individual, historical uh, human being, and Eve would be, therefore, as well. And Luke does have a purpose. He says, Adam, the son of God, and then introduces uh, the temptation of the Jesus, uh, the Satan's temptation of Jesus after that. And Satan tempts Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, right? So he's trying to make a connection between Jesus and Adam, but he does it 
by showing that Adam is an historical figure, right, connected to the historical figure of Jesus. And those two simple observations make me think, at the very least, that the ancient readers uh, who have become biblical authors in Chronicles and Luke are reading this ancient text as history. Uh, they see Adam as an individual actor in the world that's connected to real history. And, and so then when I look back at the narrative itself in Genesis, it seems to me that the way that the story is connected together is the reason they read it that way. Uh, what I mean by that is if you take out Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve as historical individuals, it's really hard to make sense of the narrative that follows. But one, just a simple observation that, you know, uh, the people that are born after Adam and Eve kind of construct the story that continues in the history and the rest of right. it. <laughs> They're it, all related to Adam yeah, and Eve. That happens, but also the way the story is told and not just in the generalities of uh, we now suffer under sin and death because of sin is kind of a broad category, but, it, but in the specific things and the way that that suffering is constructed. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, when God, uh, Adam and Eve sin and uh, God's pronouncing the curse, he says things like uh, in 314, I'm reading from the ESV, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this curse for you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, this theme of offspring, this this ch this child that is born as this promise, and then carries forward through the rest of the book of Genesis. It's a central point in the rest of the narrative of Genesis of who is the seed, who's going to bruise the head of the serpent. And, and we can know that this is the case because it's very concerned to talk about who is born uh, from Adam and Eve. And that's why the chronicler cares about that, uh, who's born, and carrying back this genealogy back to Adam. It's why Luke cares about this genealogy carried back to Adam, because they're looking for who is the seed who's going to do this, uh, as well as the covenants that are made, uh, the covenant that's made with Abraham and continued through Isaac and Jacob. One of the central thing is the offspring that comes from them that will bless all nations. Right. So the rest of the historical narrative is picking up on this promise that God makes in the midst of this curse. Uh, to the woman, he says in verse 16 in Genesis 3, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And pain you shall bring forth children, your, your desires shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Why, why is this here? Why is it stated like this? Well, if you go back to Genesis 1, uh, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. This is part of the mission that God had for humanity, was to be fruitful and multiply, to and to rule over and subdue the earth. There's this being fruitful and multiplying, giving birth, and there's this ruling language that's there as part of the, the beautiful blessing that God has for his people. Well, that's now twisted and the suffering is going to happen. It, that mission continues, but it's going to continue through suffering uh, because of their sin. So I think the specific language is connected back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and, and their purpose as image bearers and what God blesses them to do. But then when you continue through the rest of the narrative, Genesis doesn't focus on the physical pain of childbearing, but God's covenant promises always continue through a barren womb. Uh, and the struggle between husband and wife or husband and wives that are there and the conflict that arises from the children that are born uh, from these marriages. And, and so you constantly see this pain and strife and suffering and conflict that results within marriages and in the fruit of marriages. And yet God's promise continues through that. He never abandons that, but it's through that suffering that it's going to happen. 
that's taking us back to understanding why is that the case? Because of what happens in Genesis 3. Uh, we have this beautiful mission from God in Genesis 1 and 2, but it gets it gets distorted in Genesis 3 because of our sin. And so we see that pain continue, but we also see God's faithfulness in the midst of it. Or uh, in Genesis 3.17, God starts to talk to Adam after they sin. It says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. Uh, what is this doing? It's twisting the idea of work, which had just been given in Genesis 2 to Adam, to work and to till the garden. Um, and, and now that mission continues, but it continues through pain and suffering. Uh, and that's, I think it's why we have the story of Noah the way that we have it. Uh, when Noah is introduced at the end of Genesis 5, what's his purpose? To relieve us and to bring comfort to and rest to our toil, toilsome labor, uh, the, the suffering that we have in our labor. Mm-hmm. That's the purpose of Noah. Well, what is that connected to? It's connected back to undoing the curse of Genesis 3 so that we can fulfill our mission that God gave us in Genesis 1 and 2. And so if you take Genesis 3 out, it's really hard to understand any of the history that follows from that. But if we put it back in, suddenly that history makes a ton of sense if we're willing to read the story as a whole and not just chop it up. And so all of that to say is just a small piece, really, of when I read the narrative— I see it as a whole cloth, and it seems like Adam and Eve in the story, even though there's this walking serpent, God's walking around in the garden, um, and I've never found the tree of life on the earth, and all those sort of Mm -hmm. things. When I read the biblical narrative, what the author is trying to communicate, these events are connected not only generally to explain human existence, but specifically to explain the history of Israel connected to these events. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to think, uh, the biblical author didn't really think that this that there was at least an historical core to what was going on. Uh, if you take this history out, you can't make really you can't really make sense of the world as portrayed from the biblical author. So w- w- then, when you connect that to later biblical authors seemingly pointing back to an individual Adam, man, it really seems like again, what is this theological history told to us in, in, within ancient categories? Um, but history for sure. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you for walking us through just the general concept, but then also that specific and really weighty example. Um, But maybe moving on from that a little bit and connected to what you just said, you know, the biblical author, because the next question that often arises is, is who authored these books, this Pentateuch, these five books? And traditionally it's been understood that Moses wrote the five books Again, the Bible itself refers to those books that way. In the New New Testament, um, it's referred to if something is quoted from those books, it's Moses said or Moses wrote or Moses did. And that has been the traditional understanding that Moses wrote the five books. But that has also come into a lot of dispute in lots of circles, academic circles, whether or not Moses wrote it or a lot of other people wrote it or Moses had nothing to do with it. Um, So, where do you, yeah, where would you start the authorship discussion? Who wrote these books? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question and has dominated scholarship on the Pentateuch for, for a while now, for a few centuries. And uh, it, the traditional view is that Moses wrote it. Now, we're going to come back to the idea of what does it mean that Moses wrote it? 
Uh, that may sound like a funny question. That I means you just kind of sat down and wrote it out. Well, not necessarily. Uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna come back to that question and look at it from a biblical perspective. Um, but uh, that's a traditional view that was challenged, and really it was challenged by a close reading of the text, where there are these inconsistencies seemingly in the Bible. Um, and uh, like, for example, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, seemingly two different creation accounts that are contradictory. Uh, I think it starts when, over. It, start, it starts, oh yeah. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you have a new creation account that begins in Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And that phrase, these, these are the generations, continues as a structuring element throughout Genesis, but it's not there in Genesis 1. Uh, again, uh, when you see something like that, I think there's, not only do I think, I think there's a growing sense in scholarship um, across the board that what we see as inconsistencies in the text are only inconsistencies based on modern categories and ways of reading the text. An ancient reader would not necessarily have seen that as an inconsistency or contradiction because they would have a genre for understanding, a category for understanding what the author is doing that that isn't immediately present to our minds. Um, there's actually, well, I mean, I could be getting a little off here, but there's <laughs> the most recent edition of the Journal of Biblical Literature, uh, which is put out by the Society of Biblical Literature. The first article is on the Joseph narrative in, in Genesis 37. And when you read that, you see some things that seem contradictory or inconsistent. Uh, and one of those is, well, was he sold into slavery, Joseph? Or uh, was he kidnapped? Or what's happening? And there are these layers to it where it seems like characters are supposed to know things because something happened previously, but they don't. There's an amazing article uh, that, that goes through and basically says, uh, if we knew some of these things that ancient cultures would have known readily, uh, we wouldn't have asked these questions in the first place, essentially. One of those is if we knew shepherding practices, then we would be able to resolve some of these inconsistencies. Um, or if we knew how human trafficking worked in the ancient East, we would not ask, was he uh, kidnapped or was he sold? But these two things are kind of part and parcel of the same thing. Really interesting stuff. But uh, all that to say, uh, that's why it's important to say it's theological history and an ancient text is there are things that we would think as inconsistent or there's a gap in the text that isn't filled in and, and we see contradiction or maybe we see a different source there. Um, and that has caused people to say, Moses didn't write this. This is multiple hands at work. Uh, and in particular, uh, kind of codified by a guy named, guy named Julius Fellhausen a couple of centuries ago, he said, um, well, there's four different sources uh, in in the Pentateuch, in the first five books. Uh, there's somebody uh, called the Yahwist who that we can call Jay. Um, he use he likes to use the name Yahweh. Uh, his it's the earliest that we document that we have. The God's a little bit more anthropomorphic. Uh, those sorts of things. Then we have uh, the Eloist E, an E source. Uh, so we have J, and then we have E. E likes the name Elohim. He's written a little bit later than Jay, and this would not be Moses using these sources. This would be Jay written sometime in uh, the 10th century, so the 900s, uh, E a little bit after that. And then you have D, uh, which stands for the Deuteronomist, uh, and he basically wrote Deuteronomy because uh, it seems like a, a little bit different thing than some of these these other texts that we have. Uh, and that would, uh, would not have been... Uh, 
found by Josiah later in the Bible, but King Josiah in the seventh century would have written Deuteronomy. So when it uh, says that Josiah rediscovered the law and read it for the first right. time and went. Exactly. Exactly. But actually he just wrote that part. That's a narrative constructed uh, to for Josiah to hold power and, and make some reforms. But really what actually happened is that he wrote uh, Deuteronomy or sometime during someone during that period did. Now, again, this is kind of a, an older view uh, of what's happening. But I hope what you see up to this point, we have J.E. and D. up to this point, is that uh, over against the Mosaic authorship uh, that's earlier, uh, that's recounting kind of the truth of the historical narrative, what J.D.P. does is says, well, there are these later uh, accounts, and these later accounts help us account for the inconsistencies, and there are contradictions between their theology, uh, between the specific uh things that they recount in similar stories. The reason you have similar stories twice uh, is you have different sources. Uh, and, and then the final final one, and J.E.D. and P., is a priestly source written in the exilic or post-exilic time, uh, meaning after the Babylonian exile or during the Babylonian exile, uh, roughly around 539 and, and thereafter. And so... Uh, that was uh, really in response to this is, to explain this is why we went into exile. Uh, we didn't follow this law, so this is what we need to do. Again, this is very oversimplified. Uh, but we have J.E.D. and P. as kind of these whole cloth texts that then somebody picks up and weaves them together to tell one story. The result is inconsistencies. Uh, the result is contradictions. Um, and this is why they use documentary hypothesis. Like these are four different documents right. that are then woven that's right. together. That's right. That's right. And so that's how it kind of comes about. Now, the past couple of centuries of scholarship have, have debated this and looked for different sources. And there's been different layers to each of these developing to where to where they are. Um, but, but like I mentioned earlier in the article in Journal of Biblical Literature, uh, there's kind of a growing consensus. Well, that's the wrong word. Uh, there's not a consensus really about anything. Uh, there's consensus a growing, in academia? You amaze me. Just, just delete that. Um, <laughs> but uh, the there is kind of a growing uh, portion of scholars, growing number of scholars that are arguing these inconsistencies and contradictions that we see uh, when we read the narrative and we would expect something, but we don't find it, or we see a repetition in the narrative, or we see two different creation accounts, or we see a poetic account of the Exodus narrative and then a narrative account uh, of the Exodus. These aren't necessarily two different sources, because when we read them as a, expecting what an ancient reader would expect, uh, they no longer at least, at the very least, they no longer require two different authors or separate authors to account for all these things. Uh, so a scholar has done this, and I'll, I'll recommend this book to you at the end. Uh, Joshua Berman has done a lot of work in this. Uh, he's got he's got a great article on Deuteronomy, the beginning of Deuteronomy. It recounts Israel's history up to that point, but it seems more negative than the actual accounts that went before. He explains why that is using uh, these covenant treaties that they, that that are that we found among the Hittites to say that's how they would have done it. They would have if mm-hmm. if you had an agreement with someone. Uh, it might sound positive, but if they break that agreement, your later recollection of that side-by-side accounts are going to be more negative because of the breaking of that agreement. He says that's the sort of thing that's happening at, Deuteron- at the beginning of Deuteronomy. It's not a different source. It's that some history has happened, and so it's going to be told a little bit more negative because if you remember uh, the people of Israel, they, they come out of the Exodus, they go to Sinai, and then things uh, get squirrely. 
pretty immediately as they you know create idols and things like that and complain and grumble uh, and so the history is a little bit more negative uh, and it's a book called inconsistency in Torah and the Torah it's a great little book uh, that I find really helpful um, but over against that is as I was talking about the the unity of that story that's why I think it's so important to point out the unity that's there in the midst of this diversity is the text isn't just chopped up I think there's unity there, which I think lends itself to seeing uh, one essential author uh, that gave us this final text. Uh, well, yeah, because part of my question there, because the documenting hypothesis in whatever forms, kind of there's two elements. There's these different sources, but then composed over these huge ranges of time, like right. over thousands of years and like way after the events described. And yeah, as you sort of, I'm interested to hear what you think about author- authorship and Moses, because it, it doesn't necessarily mean that Moses couldn't have used sources, right? I mean, because there's the using of sources, and then there's the vast expanse of time that the documentary hypothesis talks about. And those can be kind of separated into two elements. So how, what do you, I mean, you said you were going to talk about this, but how do you think Moses wrote it if Moses wrote it? Yeah, so it's a good, it's a good question. So, uh, I, I don't want to necessarily deny that there are sources that are used at the outset, right? Uh, uh, I don't think a, a, a Christian's view of Scripture has to require that Moses uh, wrote this all himself from beginning to end using no sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of the, one of the big reasons that for the Christian is the gospel, Luke, at the beginning of the gospel, he just straight up says, I did research and I've used sources <laughs> to help me understand the story. <laughs> Right. As a good historian, uh, Luke, the historian, my favorite. <laughs> yeah. And so he and he just admits it straight away. Like there's no, uh, well, you know, I sat on a mountain with God and he just revealed this to me. It's not and it's totally detached from anything else you've ever heard. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, it seems to be that Luke wants to show that that's not the case. It's very much connected to the things uh, that Theophilus has heard. He wants them to be certain of. And and so there's no there's nothing that we need to do to say that that Moses used zero sources. Mm-hmm. And so we might be able to discover that there are different sources that are woven together, but the way that we do that can't be a, according to a modern category. It has to be according to what an ancient reader would have expected. And I think that's more the question. Uh, so could Mo- Moses have used sources? Yes. Can we necessarily see where they are? I don't think so. And then would we be able to date them to a specific time period? I don't think that's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing that we have is that this final form of the text. <laughs> we we just don't have these other documents, and so it's a, it's a documentary hypothesis uh, that posits that there are these things when it sees uh, alleged tensions in the text. Um, but uh, I think Moses could have used sources, uh, and I think he's the essential author is the way that I would describe it. Um, and one of the things that uh, that makes me think that Moses is the author. Uh, and then I'll come back to to define essential author here in a second, is uh, the way that I think Moses experienced God is, and the way that it's told to us in the Exodus, is um, he was a Hebrew child who grew up in, in the Egyptian courts. Um, he then uh, gets he sees a Hebrew uh, slave being beaten. He kills an Egyptian, runs away. God shows up to him. And uh, then he leads, he helps lead the people of God out of slavery in, in Egypt in the Exodus narrative. And I think it's this experience of the Exodus 
uh, and, and the plagues uh, on Egypt that Yahweh brought that reveals to him who Yahweh is. That, that this Yahweh uh, is not just the God of Israel, but he really is God of gods and king of kings. He's Lord of lords. He's the one who created all the earth. And the reason I say that is this. Uh, Moses was not there when God created the world. Uh, that seems like a pretty safe assumption. Uh, nobody was there <laughs> the beginning with God, right? And so uh, he's not, in other words, he's not an eyewitness to what happened. But the way that he describes a lot of the creation narrative takes on the language of the Exodus. Uh, and just to give one example, uh, when, the, when, you know, uh, he takes a staff, puts it in the ground, the water is separated and dry ground appears. That's the exact language that happens in the creation narrative uh, when he separates the waters and dry ground appears. And, and I think the reason that that's important is Moses is maybe using sources, but he's also using uh, his experience with this God, uh, kind of firsthand experience with this God, Exodus, to describe what's gone before. Uh, and so this God who has led them out of the Exodus is also the God who created the world. And he's trying to make that connection. And, uh, one of the reasons I think this is important is there's an incredible quote that I think kind of brings this together for me and what Moses is doing, his experience with Yahweh and then and in writing about earlier events. He may be using sources, but he's shaping them based according to, to his experience of this God. And uh, there's a great quote from uh, a scholar named Rita J. Burns. Uh, and it's in this little commentary on Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I stumbled across it. And this quote, uh, you could say that all of my teaching is trying to show that this quote is true. <laughs> and it's a lead up. <laughs> and I, think, I, think, I think it summarizes really well what I've been talking about in terms of the unifying story and this consistency that's there. And so here's what she said. And it, it talks about history as well. Uh, she says that Israel believed history to be unfolding according to a divine plan, sometimes ambiguous, but never arbitrary or chaotic. It was meaningful and purposeful. Because the God who was there was one, there was constancy in history's unfolding movements. But alongside this constancy and consistency was the anticipation of newness. History never simply repeated itself because of the presence of the one who was not only constant, but also dynamic. Such is history when it is bound with the one whose name is Yahweh. The name itself suggests constant and gracious presence but also divine freedom to be present in ways ever new. And that's the end of the quote. I usually just sit in that quote for a long time. Uh, but really what she's saying is this name Yahweh is built off the Hebrew word uh, to be. Um, and what that's what she's implying there is God not only is, but he is whom he will be. And, and so when you look at uh, the fact that God is and he acts in, in consistency with his character, when Moses looks at the Exodus event and sees God acting, when he sees that he is more powerful than any of the Egyptian gods and even more powerful than Pharaoh himself, he is experiencing a, a God, if he is the creator of the world, who is consistent in his character and reveals his character uh, on the mountain to him in Exodus 34. He can then look back, if he has sources or not, look back and connect that history and show that same character all the way through to the Exodus when it gets to him. And I think that's what's ha that's that's the way that he's shaping the narrative is his experience of this God of Israel 
whom he now believes to display the Exodus and his mighty power, that he is the God who has created all things and rules over all things. He's taking the stories maybe that he's heard, these texts that he's had, and he's shaping them to show how that story has led to this moment in history. And so I think that's that's the, the essence of what we find uh, in the Pentateuch. So I think Moses is the essential author. But there are things in the text that seem to suggest that Moses isn't the author of every detail uh, in the Pentateuch. And, and a text to, to look at here, I think, is uh, there's a lot of little things we could point to. Deuteronomy 34 is really important to point to uh, because it talks about Moses' death, which you probably didn't write about. Uh, but then it also has some, some interesting phrases that make us think that there's been some time that has passed since the writing of Deuteronomy 34. Uh, so, I mean, I'll just um, start in verse 5 in Deuteronomy 34. It says, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Uh, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial. Listen to this phrase, to this day. That seems like there's some time that has passed. Uh, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Uh, and the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. It would be strange if Moses were able to recount uh, the 30 days of mourning that happened for him <laughs> after he died, right? Uh, continuing verse 9, And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there was not arisen, this is important, 30, Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Uh, and so here at the end of, of Deuteronomy, at the end of the Pentateuch, we have this uh, recounting of the death of Moses, also the days that follow Moses' death. And it says that no one has arisen like Moses no, no prophet like Moses has arisen uh, up to this day or, or since then. No one has arisen. It seems to imply that there's a period of time that has gone on, and the author has experienced that period of time. It doesn't seem that Moses uh, wrote this final part. So uh, what do we do with something like that? Uh, does this not show that there are, are later sources or later authors? And I think in one sense it does. Uh, I think that there are later uh, I would call them uh, editors with a light hand uh, that come in and, and update the text. Uh, and I think we see a hint of this with Joshua uh, in Joshua 24. And so in Joshua 24, uh, Joshua is at Shechem, and there's this covenant renewal ceremony that's happening for the people of God. Uh, and so I'll read a little bit. And then uh, really hone in on a particular part that I think shows us that uh, there was editing that Joshua did uh, to the book of the law uh, that Moses provided. I'll start in verse 19 in Joshua 24. It says, But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. 
And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said to them, put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. Now listen to verse 26. So Joshua just put into place these statutes and rules based on this agreement uh, that they will follow and obey the voice of the Lord. Sounds a lot like what, what's, what happens at, at Sinai with Moses. Verse 26, immediately following that. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. What's happening here is, is the story of Israel continues. Uh, they're renewing the covenant. And there are statutes and rules that are given to them to obey in this relationship with God. And, and Joshua adds these statutes and rules to the book of the law of God. And so it seems to me that um, what continues to go on, at, at least with Joshua here, is that there are people who will go in and update and, and add to, not in a sense of something different or contradictory, but continue to expand uh, God's rules for his people and, and maybe update uh, some language uh, along the way in the narratives like this is still true to this day or a prophet like Moses has not, had not, has not arisen since. And it seems to me that uh, when you look at kind of how the Old Testament unfolds, it's the prophetic office uh, that really does this. Now, it's a whole kind of different story. Um, but I think we have an example here in the biblical text, ex- text itself of editing that happens afterward. Um, and, and so there, I think, that's why I would say Moses is the essential author, but uh, the text seems to be updated up to a certain period of time. Now, uh, when the to this day comes to an end uh, is a different question. Uh, but at the very least, we see within the biblical text itself uh, that there is editing that happens, and that ought not to uh, threaten or... Um, anything like that, our, our sense of scripture being from God or uh, mosaic authorship. So I guess my final question with that would be, you're accepting the idea that there can be some editing, like even here, Joshua edits the text a little bit. The text itself seems to show editing. But I feel like, again, part of the documentary hypothesis is this idea that scripture just it serves human purposes, you know, it served the purposes of Josiah to invent all these laws and invent this backstory and like solidify the place of Israel or so, or all the stuff that emphasizes Judah as the important son, you know, is just put in retroactively to support the Judea, the Judaic kingship sure. as opposed to kingship elsewhere. So how would you sort of respond to the idea that people just put in self-serving edits, you know, that they don't, or how are they viewing this text as inspired by God, and 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 how do they treat it with reverence? Um, does that make sense? Of yeah. rather than this utilitarian view of the text that it just serves to keep people in power, how do we know how they view the text, and when would they have felt able to update a place name or add a you know closing paragraph about Moses or something? Right. Well, you know, I think. The Joshua example is important, you know, because there's very clearly a handing off of kind of mosaic authority to to Joshua. It says that the spirit was with him uh, and that he had wisdom uh, and that Moses kind of hands authority over to him as God uh, to continue God's mission with his people as the leader of God's people. And and Joshua one kind of continues that narrative. So this isn't like a random person 
right? That goes in. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I'm just going to add some words that sound good to <laughs> the Mosaic Law. It's still a spirit at work through Joshua. And I think that's why it's also important to think of this as a prophetic office that he's taking on. Um, the, the prophets uh, in, in the Old Testament, they God speaks to them and they speak God's word. Um, and so it is. It is, a, is an office that is uh, that is unique, and that how God speaks to them and, and by His Spirit, uh, they they're kind of God's mouthpiece. And so it makes sense that they would continue uh, writing uh, the scriptures. Um, so that's one thing. It's not just random people can go in and do whatever they want with the Book of the Law. It doesn't appear that that's the case. Uh, in terms of how to be or uh, how would I answer the self serving idea this might be too simple of an answer um and these these arguments and things are are far more complicated and complex but this would just seem a very strange history to tell uh for people who are interested in in just maintaining power like if i'm going to tell history and try to show that i should be in the line of Abraham, I think I would tell a different story of Abraham. Like Abraham is not great. Um, Pretty messed up family. Founding father of the, the, the nation of Israel, the one to whom God shows up. Uh, he pawns his wife off to an Egyptian leader as his sister. Um, he and, and a plague comes, uh, you know, uh, because of that. Uh, and, and even Pharaoh recognizes that that Abraham's done, or the leader in Egypt recognizes something that Abraham's done something wrong. Uh, I don't know if I want an Egyptian correcting my Israelite founding father. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole story of Hagar and Ishmael, uh, then on down the line with Jacob and Esau. Jacob's a deceiver, uh, constantly cheating his brother out of stuff. Uh, and those those stories are just not good. You have, um, uh, I mean, on into the Joseph story and. His brothers and having a the favorite and beloved son, which creates all kind of strife. Uh, these people are not presented as these perfect paragons of what we ought we ought to be. Uh, the central theme in the narrative is God's faithfulness in the midst of it. Right? You see this in the story of Abraham. It's really clear that you have um, God always shows up uh, and, and renews kind of Hey, Abraham, I'm I'm gonna fulfill my promises, right? So Genesis 15, he shows up and. Uh, says some new stuff about the covenant and Abraham says, how do I know that I'm going to keep this land, for example? And, and you know, it's like, well, you're not going to have it now, uh, but the sin of the, the Amorites and all these people, it's going to be full in a few hundred years and your people are going to go in to captivity and then uh, I'll bring them out. And uh, then in Genesis 16 is when you have Hagar and the story of Hagar and Abraham sleeps with Hagar instead of Sarah and it's in Genesis 17 that God pops back up and says, no, 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 that, that's not how we're doing this. Uh, it's going to be through you and Sarah, and I'm going to give you a child, and the covenant promise is going to continue. In other words, uh, it's not just Abraham in himself uh, that makes this thing work. It, it's Yahweh. It, it's God. And throughout the biblical narrative, uh, Israel and, and, and Israel's fathers uh, are they're kind of laced with sin. And, and the story continues because of God's faithfulness. And so to me, or you read the story of the Kings, like you can argue that it's about somebody having power. Hardly any of them are good. And even mm-hmm. who's described as a God, as a man after God's own heart, not the best. Right. I mean, I, I don't. And so to me, if I were really trying to make a claim to power 
based on how I structured previous narratives, I would do it in a very, very different way. Um, or if I were trying to tell the story of a really pure nation, uh, I would do it in a different way. There's just, and so to me, uh, again, this is more kind of practical and simple. It's not the scholarly academic argument, but when you look at that history and then you ask me, but is this really history? Like, why would you write this? Why else would you tell this story? <laughs> the story of like other kings in, in the ancient Near East, their accomplishments are just above and beyond. It's just over-the-top description of their accomplishments and destroying their enemies and how the gods favor them and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> you open up to the story of the kings in Israel and it's like, oh, okay, yeah. These people are really messed up, you know? And again, that might be an oversimplification, but I'm, I just wonder, like, why would I write this history? And then why would I have it end? Why would you end it with uh, this call back uh, to return from exile? Or why would you end the story if you end it with Malachi with uh, things are going to get better in the future, but things are still really unresolved. Mm-hmm. Like the way that you tell the story about your kings, about your leaders, about your your founding fathers of the country, if you want to use that 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 phraseology, I, it, it, I would just tell it differently uh, if I'm trying to make a power play. Um, so it, to me, it just doesn't, yeah. on the face of it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. And we will, I'll ask you in a minute for further resources, because obviously there are many academic uh, conversations to be had about the sources that we're working with. And I hope that people listening will go into these topics. Obviously, you can take seminary classes and discuss things for whole semesters and years and PhDs and professorships. So there's a lot more to be said in these areas. And I want to encourage anyone listening, if you're interested in these topics, to look at the resources that Mark is going to recommend and to keep following up because um, there's a lot more to be said. But as we wrap up here, Mark, for those who maybe don't have access to all the academic, you know, back and forth and are not necessarily going to follow that every every week or every month. When we think more personally, when it comes to you believing in the authenticity and authority of the Pentateuch, you know, maybe a revelation comes out this week or like we found this text or we can't find the ruins of this city or we can or we can't, you know, these sort of arguments that can go on for a while. When it comes to you personally, what are your like top two or three reasons why you trust in the authenticity and authority of the Pentateuch? Yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, you know, uh, seminary at Gordon-Conwell was, was such an interesting time. And often uh, you go to seminary and you start learning things that, that you hadn't heard before. And I came to seminary with a ton of questions about the integrity of the text, uh, New Testament, Old Testament, etc. And um, I think what uh, ended up kind of coming down for me is I've talked a lot about the unity of the text. And I think the reason that even subconsciously I just kind of start talking about the unity of the text is what I had been taught in an academic setting prior to Gordon Conwell was that everything was chopped up, uh, that there was a there was a source here, there's a source there. Uh, and when you compare these two, clearly there's contradictions, and we can only explain this aspect of the text. If it's, if it's later, then we say that the author is, and I'm talking about like just across the board, Old Testament, New Testament. They One couldn't the, have known that then, and so yeah, they, they must have added have, it later. They couldn't have known that then. The way that you refer to the city couldn't have been that. Obviously, Genesis 1 and 2 are contradictory. Um, the, the, so many things. 
And so uh, when I came to Gordon-Conwell, to me, the, the Bible, and, and honestly, the way that the Bible is taught in the church most of the time almost reflects this chopping up of the text. You teach it six verses at a time, right? Mm-hmm. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but the Bible is just this chopped up, uh, you know, it was, it was a log that had been put through a wood chipper, and then the chips had just been scattered, and I was looking at it trying to make sense. Now, with Gordon-Conwell, my education there did, they really emphasized the story of Scripture, a unified story of Scripture, a biblical theology that walked through the text as a whole and saw it as a coherent whole and as a unity. And I, I began to, to kind of think in this way, and just time and time again throughout uh, years of studying the text, I came to the conclusion that this thing is not as chopped up as people want it want to think it is in, in some academic circles, but there really is a unity to it, and it's a beautiful unity, uh, and that requires just a lot of time and conversation. Mm-hmm. I don't want to avoid the hard questions about the text because I think what ends up happening is the more that you dive into those hard questions, I think mm-hmm. the more that you'll discover the unity if we can think kind of with with a with a creative academic imagination about how can these texts go together? So, okay, these people, there's doubt cast on this, but can they really go together? And so the more that I did that, the more that I discovered, man, there's a real unity to the text and uh, in so many different ways. And so where now I hear something about where there's a tension or a contradiction or this archaeological discovery undermines whatever, and I'm like, I just, I, I have doubt that it contradicts or undermines the veracity of Scripture because I've just spent too much time in the text and seen how much unity there is from beginning to end. Uh, and so personally, right, I, I don't know if that's a real academic argument, <laughs> but from my own personal reading and study, uh, I've seen that these things can be resolved. Now, let me quickly say that doesn't mean that I can prove anything, right? You, you mentioned, you know, archaeology. Um, archaeology is a, is a crazy field. Uh, it's not my, my expertise, uh, but Archaeology, I think we sometimes look to some of these things to either prove or disprove a biblical narrative. And the, the thing that archaeology can do is either confirm that it's possible that this happened or uh, raise some doubts that, that maybe it didn't happen. Uh, and uh, even when you get to that, though, let's say it's possible that it happened, there's still an extra layer to is the biblical interpretation of this event, the theology that it's describing about who God is and who we are in the world. Is that true? That's, that's a different animal. Uh, and so uh, really, I think we have to go back to the text and say, do I see a unified story that makes sense internally? Is it a coherent narrative about who God is and what he's doing in the world? And I think we have to ask a, a second question, or I, I ask a second question personally, does it make sense to the world that I inhabit? You know, not only mm-hmm. do I do I see that it's true, but by it, can I see that other things are true? Like w- when I use this text as a lens to understand what's happening in the world, does it make sense? And it does. Bringing in some classic C.S. Lewis there. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I think that it does. And. Again, the only way that you can come to that conclusion, I, I don't have any like one liner for you uh, to be able to be able to get you there. Is you just have to steep yourself in the text, and you have to steep yourself in the text not as an individual, but in community with people who are also steeped in the text and striving and wrestling with the text to understand what is it saying, and and what does that mean for us. And so, uh, I mean, that's one of the great things I loved about doing campus ministry at Princeton. Mm-hmm. That's just what we did all the time with students is uh, whether they were uh, they were 
doubters of the text or uh, they were coming, just wanted to soak up more. It was always diving deep and wrestling with the text together to see what it said. And then then to come out and ask the question, uh, do we trust that this is God's word to us? And if so, what does that mean? So um, to me, it really is about the unity of the text uh, internally. And then the fact that when I look at the text and I ask, is this true of the world that I inhabit? Uh, it helps me make sense of the world in which we live. Um, so for me, those are kind of the the two big things personally that I that I hold on to. Thank you. Yeah, I think that will just help people as we think through it. And we do hope that this podcast does help those who are wrestling with these questions, because as Mark says, these are very important. And we want our main resources to read the text itself. And I encourage you all to be deep in scripture and reading the actual text of scripture. But also, as we finish, Mark, what would be some next step resources for people to explore um, if they wanted to take, you know, go further and read an article or a book along these lines? What would you recommend? Sure. um, There are a couple of things that that I would recommend. I think probably at the top of the list, just in understanding the Pentateuch, uh, both a conversation about um, the documentary hypothesis, but then the unity of the story within that. I think T. Desmond Alexander's book, uh, From Paradise to Promised Land, is really helpful. Um, You know, it's in its third or fourth edition now. originally came out in the 1990s. Uh, But I think it's a really helpful, clear, accessible way to kind of get a handle uh, on that conversation. That's where I would go first, uh, especially for uh, your students. Um, Kind of a notch above that that's more technical if you want to really dive into kind of the current state of affairs with regard to the documentary hypothesis and someone is trying to, to say, Hey, we need to rethink how we think about this. There's a book called inconsistency in Torah in the Torah uh, by Joshua Berman. Um, and he's a Jewish scholar and uh, he kind of, he begins the book talking about this world council that happened of all these different scholars of the, of the Pentateuch. And they came together and they all have different ways of studying the text. And he just talks about, Hey, we're, we're not on the same page. And uh, can we just clarify you know, methodologically, how are we studying the text? What are we doing? Why are we coming to these vastly different conclusions? Um, and then he writes a book on that seems like there are inconsistency in Torah. And one problem that we have is we are, we are anachronistically reading uh, kind of modern ways of understanding inconsistency back into an ancient text. And he gives some amazing examples of uh, ancient Near Eastern parallels to the, to the Pentateuch that show an ancient reader would not have seen this as, as contradictory or untrue or anything like that. He's, his work is, is really, really interesting. Um, and then there's a third book that I would recommend that, that's very recent by a guy named Craig Bartholomew. Now, this might be like even a step up from um, what uh, Joshua Berman does. But Craig Bartholomew goes at kind of the philosophical underpinnings of what we even call history, uh, how we think about history, what history is. That sounds like a step above. We're going yeah, real meta yeah, here. Yeah, we're, we're going real. So, you know, he gets into, um, you know, he's talking about, like he talks about Kant and uh, Spinoza and and all this stuff. Yeah, once you mention um, those guys, you're off yeah, to the races. And it's it's uh, he's Bartholomew is a kind of a different different level of guy, but it's called the God who acts in history. Uh, and so 
he he's really getting at kind of the philosophical underpinnings there. So I'd start with T. Desmond Alexander for sure. Uh, as a problem saying, just focus really on the biblical text and talking about what's there. In his introduction or first couple of chapters, he talks about the documentary hypothesis, but then puts the narrative together uh, in a really compelling way. And then Joshua Berman and consistency in Torah and uh, Craig Bartholomew, the God who acts in history. Uh, another guy that uh, you should just read is Gordon Wenham. There's a his commentary on Genesis and the word biblical commentary. His kind of introduction and in the his commentary on Genesis one to three I think is a really helpful, uh, quick, accessible way of of learning about some more of these things. That sounds great. And we'll put these links in the podcast description. I think I might begin with From Paradise to Promised Land. I have yet to read these. So I'll start at the lower, lower level, but higher um, than what I've been reading before. And I just appreciate those recommendations. And also an additional resource is that Mark has really kindly said that he would be happy to talk to anyone who's listening to this podcast and would like to reach out to him with more questions or if you want to follow up with something that was said on this podcast, he would be happy to be in communication with you. So if you'd like to talk to Mark, please ask one of the PCF staff members, and we will pass along his email to you. All right. So thank you so much, Mark. This has been, I've really been helped by this conversation and just blessed by your thoughts. There's a lot for me to consider. I hope there's a lot for our listeners to consider. And as always, if you're involved in PCF, we as staff love to talk with you about these issues. and. Um, just continue to dialogue about the Old Testament, about its authority, about its authenticity, and how do we sort of rightly handle the biblical text. So thank you for listening to this conversation. Thank you to Mark for all your wisdom and your time that you've given to this conversation. And we hope that you guys will have a blessed day. Bye-bye. <laughs>